No other king could vanquish the war horse or silence the warrior's rage while riding the lowly back of a donkey. No other king could break the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of evil, with a reign of grace and a kingdom of peace. No other king could give his life for the redemption of rebels, his wealth to welcome the outcast. Jesus is that king, the king of glory, son of the living God. Not just another king, not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He was the one the world had been waiting for. The one to deliver us from captivity, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He is the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the one prefigured to Noah in the flood, the one promised to Abraham, the one guaranteed to Moses before he died, the one promised to David during his reign, the one revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the one predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. He is our Jesus, and there is no other king like him. He is our God, our glory, our victorious Savior. There is no other king like him. There is no other king. Well, amen to that. King Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. Just as he said he would, and we are, and we are, we have the blessing this morning of of not not just recognizing Jesus as King, but but what we're going to do, contemplating the implications of that, and then worshiping him accordingly. This King who reigns victoriously, not just on that morning when the, the with the empty tomb for the first time, but continues to reign today. You know, the, the, the statement that's recorded in, uh, in the Gospels is true every day, but it was first spoken on that Easter morning when the women went to the tomb and sought to anoint the body of Jesus. And the statement made to them it was, he's not here. He's not here. He is risen. And it, Let's just imagine that. Women going to the tomb, that's what is told them. There were some immediate implications for them when that statement was made. One of their foremost concerns as they were on the way was, who's going to move the stone? Who's going to roll the stone away? That's a legitimate concern. Well, an angel had already taken care of that when they got there. They had traveled to the tomb carrying 
all kinds of spices and all for nothing, right? There was no body there to anoint. Uh, Their schedule for the morning, which I'm sure they had expected to spend anointing the body of Jesus, was suddenly wide open. There was no body to to anoint. Their, Their emotions of sorrow, sadness, were replaced with different emotions, emotions of probably some confusion, but also hope at the message that was spoken to them. So, so the immediate implications when those words were spoken, he's not here, he is risen, their day unfolded completely from what they expected, those women at the tomb for the first time. But the implications for them in the immediate moment only scratches the surface of what it meant that Jesus rose from the dead. I think a person can argue that the entire New Testament after the four Gospels is a treatise on the implications of Jesus' resurrection. What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? Books and letters were written unpacking just what it meant. It wasn't just some fascinating yet trivial event. Jesus' resurrection changed everything changed everything. And one of the places where the implications of his resurrection is, is powerfully unpacked is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so in this letter, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, he touches on all kinds of different topics, but it's quite fitting that he reserves his longest discourse in the letter for the subject of Jesus' resurrection. Paul states in that chapter that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then both his preaching and our faith is in vain. And so, so what we know to be true and what we proclaim this morning is that Paul's preaching and our faith is not in vain. Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. So I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to unpack some of what Paul talks about here. Um, It's page 961 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow there. Before Paul unpacked the, the incredible implications of Jesus rising from the dead, he made sure to highlight the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. I mean, there would be people today who would resist the notion that Jesus was killed on the cross and then rose from the dead. You can't prove it, some people might say, or show me the evidence, someone else might say. Well, those responses aren't exclusive to our time today. Even though we live in 2023 and Paul wrote his letter in around 55 A.D., The same doubts existed then as they do now. And so as a result, Paul Paul makes his statement about Jesus rising from the dead, and then he cites his sources, all 500 plus of them. (laughs) So follow along with me in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So, following his conversion, Paul devoted his life to proclaiming this life-changing news of the gospel message. And at the heart of that gospel message was what he said here, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried because he was truly dead, and then rose to life on the third day, even though he was previously dead. Now, when, when a person is, uh, is interviewed by, by the police, by a lawyer, by a judge, by anyone, one indication that a person might be lying is if their story keeps changing. One time they tell it one way, the next time they tell it a different way, the third time a third way. It's not guaranteed proof because, you know, we have faulty memories and we forget things sometimes, but a consistently changing story ought to raise suspicion about lying. Well, we have decades of Paul's letters written to churches and Christians around the Roman Empire, and throughout all of those letters, the message of the gospel is unchanged. It stays the same. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. Paul, the reason Paul stuck with that story is because it was a true story. But we don't have to just take Paul's word for it. We can take Peter's word for it, whom Paul cites. We can take the disciples' word for it. We can take 500 witnesses' words for it. We can take James's word for it. We can take all the apostles' word for it. Every one of them would testify to the certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I need, I, need, uh, I need the kids and students here to help me with something this morning. So if you're in preschool, all the way on up to high schoolers, uh, go ahead, just stand up where you are real quick. I promise it won't be long. You can, you can glare at me if you need to. But kids, go ahead and stand up and take your hands. Just kind of put your hands up in the air like this, fingers spread out. Now, now to my knowledge, all of our kids have all of their fingers. And so... And judging by how many are standing here right now, each finger that's being held up by a kid can represent one witness, someone who would personally attest that they saw the risen Jesus. And we might, 
need just a few more kids to, to actually get to the full number, but hold them real high, kids, so we can all look at them. Every finger being held up represents a person who saw the resurrected Jesus. There's a lot of fingers in the air. Right. Okay, you guys can sit now. Thanks for, thanks for helping with that. Now, I, I don't know where every person here today stands in terms of believing in the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Maybe you're someone who's always had a, a, a skepticism of it, or, or perhaps you're someone who's been taught about it from a young age, but, but you never really looked into the validity of it yourself. Maybe you want to believe, but just don't know if it can really be stated as a fact. Uh, I'm here this morning to, to deliver to you the words of Paul, who says with confidence from his own experience and from that of over 500 other people that, yes, Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross and rise from the dead on the third day. There's many other things in life that are, that are considered fact when supported by much less evidence than that. So, so when we greet one another, as we did on this day or any other day, when we say that he is risen, he is risen indeed, we can say those words with absolute confidence. And I don't, I don't know when Jesus is going to return, uh, but even if it's another 2,000 years from now, our brothers and sisters in Christ will be able to say the same thing with the same confidence, that Jesus is risen. We, we can be certain of that. It has been recorded for us, and there were all kinds of witnesses that saw it. So that, that's the certainty of the event, but let's get into the incredible implications of it. Because this is where the news really gets good. I mean, it, it, it's good news that Jesus rose from the dead, but what it means, Man, that is the good news. So first off, we can talk about the implications of Jesus' resurrection for Jesus himself. So continuing in 1 Corinthians 15, if you look with me at verse 20, we read this. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says he did so as the first fruits. In other words, he was the first one to rise from the dead and stay alive. Now, now there, there had been other people in both the Old and New Testament who had been brought back to life through God's miraculous work, but all of those people physically died again at a later date. Jesus is the first fruits of those resurrected to live eternally. 
He's the first one. It means that he holds the the place of preeminence. No, No one else can state that Jesus is mimicking their previous resurrection. Jesus is not raised to life in the name of anyone else. It was him. He is the first to be resurrected to eternal life. And all who come later will follow in his footsteps. Now, that's something we'll, we'll get to a little bit later, but not quite yet. We're still talking about Jesus here first. So an implication of him rising from the dead is that he is the first and the preeminent one. It means that he is rightly deserving of worship and praise, like we've been doing this morning. He's the one we celebrate this Easter morning, no one else. It's him and him alone. And then additionally, Jesus' resurrection means that, that he can rightly reign over his kingdom, which is extending everywhere due to his destroying every rule and authority and power, like Paul says. Satan, the, the rest of the spiritual forces of evil, they battle against God. And, and it's, not, it's not like this friendly children's t-ball game where it's all about learning skills and having fun and eating a good snack afterwards. That's not the battle we're talking about. This is, this is a winner-take-all contest. And what is on the line is the authority to rule both the physical and the spiritual realm. That's the battle taking place. What Jesus' resurrection means is he won. He won. Satan threw everything he had at Jesus, gave him his best shot. Jesus won. He rose. Now, I know, I know there are residual battles in this conflict that, conflict that still take place in, in our context today, but, but the war has been won. Jesus has defeated every rule and authority and, been, and power. It's been done. The, the truth is proclaimed all over the New Testament. Paul says it other places like this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Jesus has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He says in his letter to the Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Peter says, Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. None of that is true if he stayed in the tomb after dying on the cross. But he didn't, right? He didn't. Because he rose from the dead, it's all true. He victoriously reigns over his eternal kingdom. And his resurrection also means that that he has struck the final mortal blow to Satan. As a result, he he reigns over his kingdom and and his kingdom is expanding until one day it will consist of the entirety of the physical realm. And consequently, the, the kingdom of this world is shrinking and one day it's going to disappear forever. May not always seem like that when we watch the news when we hear things that are going on in the world, but that is what is happening. Jesus' kingdom cannot be stopped. It won't be stopped. He reigns. And then Paul says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
Death is defeated by Jesus, but it, but it hasn't yet been destroyed completely. The work is done, the outcome is certain, but, but it won't be until the return of Jesus to earth that death is finally destroyed. You know, in, in John's vision about that day, he says that, that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. He says, he says that at that day, death shall be no more. You know, there's, there's a reason that the last two chapters of Revelation, the end of the Bible, talk, talk about the tree of life and the book of life and the river of life and the water of life. It's because death at that point is no more and, and all that remains is life, eternal. And it's all because the Lamb of God died on the cross and rose from the dead victoriously. Jesus rose from the dead, and because he did so, he has won the victory. We, we were singing about it all morning long so far. In our first song, we sang, Jesus arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Victory. We sang in the second song, our God has risen from the grave, and so he reigns forevermore. The what is yours? Victory, right? The victory is yours. The third song, death, where's your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. Victory, we've been singing about it. Jesus is victorious through his resurrection. That is wonderful news. And if Paul were to stop right there in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and if I were to stop my sermon right here, we'd still have reason to worship Jesus and, and proclaim his greatness. But the implications of Jesus' resurrection continue. There's more. There aren't just implications for Jesus himself. There are implications for you and me as well. And, and there's, a, there's a lot in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that talk about that. But we're going to focus on verses 50 through 58. So if you turn there, I'll, I'll read those verses. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So while Jesus has won the victory, it's not a victory that he keeps to himself. And quite the opposite there. Paul says in verse 57, we are given the victory of Jesus. 
So Jesus being the first fruits among the dead naturally means that there's more. First fruits implies that there's more coming after. So just as he was raised from the dead, so will all who participate in his victory be raised from the dead as well. If, if Jesus doesn't return first, each one of our perishable mortal bodies will succumb to physical death on this earth. But that's not the end. That is not the end. Paul reminds us that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. The victory in which we all take part will be fully evident at that point. There will not be any question. And then once, once we've been raised to life and have put on immortality and imperishability, we will inherit the kingdom of God. We will inherit this kingdom over which Jesus reigns. Again, due to his victorious resurrection. We get to reign with him in that kingdom. Now, I... Our, our experiences can cause us to forget or, or, or maybe lose sight of that reality, can't they? I mean, the pills that we had to take this morning, the pain in our bodies, the empty seat at the table, the memories that we've forgotten, they're, they're all reminders to us that the death hasn't yet been fully vanquished. It's been defeated, but it hasn't yet been destroyed. From in those moments, it, it might seem like death just continues on with this 100% rate of victory. But Jesus' resurrection on the third day decreased that percentage. And, and in terms of real numbers, it only decreased it by like 0.000001%, right? It was just one person who, who won that victory over death. But in terms of importance, that 0.000001% means everything, right? It is a victory that, that is given to all who receive Jesus. It is a victory that is expanding. And when that moment comes and the, the trumpet sounds, death's rate of victory will be dramatically changed. I mean, all who died in Christ will rise to eternal life. And from that moment forward, death's rate of victory will plummet to 0%. Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul says. I mean, the sting of death will be removed forever. That's great news. Boy, that is great news. I, you know, I feel like, like for me personally, I yearn for that day more and more as the days go by. Maybe that's been your experience as well. As the days and years pass, just an even deeper longing for that. The promise is that you and I will be victorious through Jesus' resurrection. And because the one who made that promise is the one who rose from the dead, I think we can take that to the bank. <laughs> we can trust in that. We can put our faith in that and rest in that. It's why Paul ends his discourse on Jesus' resurrection the way he did. Look at verse 58 again with me. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Those are the words of, of, of a man speaking with confidence. All right, the reason our labor is not in vain is because of the certainty of Jesus' resurrection and the certainty of our participation in his victory. So Paul says we ought to be steadfast, immovable, abound in the work of the Lord. We, we ought to do all of that from a place of certain victory. So, so on those days where, where it's one doctor appointment after the next, let's, let's remember that in Jesus we are victorious. On, on those days where, where our grief over the death of a parent or spouse or child or friend is, is heavy, let's remember that in Jesus we are victorious. On those days when Satan and sin pulls at us and we feel like our holiness is slipping, let's remember that we are victorious in Jesus. He has won and he brings us into it. So let's not buy into the lie that death and Satan have a chance of winning. The outcome is decided. It was decided 2,000 years ago at that empty tomb. It's done. And, and if, if I can combine metaphors a little bit, Jesus' empty tomb put the final nail in Satan's coffin. It's, it's done. Jesus is victorious, and he doesn't just desire to reign victoriously by himself. He desires to reign victoriously with us, and that's why he brings us into his victory. So did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, he did. We can say that with utmost confidence. What does that mean for Jesus? It means, means he deserves to be worshiped. It means he reigns victoriously over his kingdom, having defeated every enemy. And then what does that mean for us? It means that if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we participate in his victory. It means we can go through this life knowing that just as he victoriously rose from the dead to eternal life, so will we. And so I want, to end, I want to end this morning by, by adding a second phrase to this common Easter greeting. You know, as Jacob talks about how it's spoken worldwide in all these languages, maybe I ought to shudder a little bit if I'm going to add to it, but, but I think I'm okay here. I think we're well within biblical orthodoxy. So you know, you know, I'll know that when I say, he is risen, you respond by saying, he is risen indeed. What I think we ought to proclaim along with that is, because he has risen, so will we. He has risen, he has risen indeed, because he has risen, so will we. So let's try that this morning. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Because he has risen, so will we. Because he has risen, so will we. All right, we'll do it one more time. Like, we really are excited about it because this is great news, even for a lot of us with German Mennonite heritage, right? <laughs> because he has risen, so will we. Amen.
Let's stand together, come before God. Praise him for his victory and also for bringing us into it. God, we're here this morning and every time we come here because of the empty tomb. You rose victoriously. You defeated every enemy and we worship you because of that. But God, along with that, we're so thankful for what that means for us. We know everything's not about us, but you bring us into your victory. And, and we're thankful for that. It gives us hope. That's why we worship you. We're so blessed to be victorious right alongside you. We know, we know we didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It was all you who secured it. And you offer it to us in your name. So God, we thank you for that this morning. It's why we've sang the songs that we've already sung. It's why we're going to sing some more. God, it, it's, it's all in light of your victory. Help us to remember that, especially on those difficult days when we, when we depart from this building and, and the, hardship, the hardships of life weigh on us. God, remind us that in you, we are victorious eternally. We give you the praise this morning, our risen King. It's in your name we pray. Amen.